to all of my beautiful humans today. Welcome to the Human Beauty Movement podcast. My name is Jennifer Norman. I'm the founder of the Human Beauty Movement and your host. The Human Beauty Movement is an initiative that I created to help foster radical self-love, radical self-acceptance, and radical self-expression. It's a beautiful thing when we can love ourselves so deeply that it liberates us and enables us to love and appreciate others, no matter who they are or how they choose to express themselves. I created this podcast to have open conversations about all aspects of the human experience. Together, we'll learn more about each other, open our hearts and minds, and discover the inner beauty that connects us all. So take a moment now to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. I'm so glad that you're here joining me for today's show. These days, it's common to invite people to share their preferred pronouns. Gender diversity is more publicly demonstrated than it was in the past, and so it's new territory for many people. Navigating what to say and how to say it regarding gender identity and sexual preference isn't easy. And of course, deep-seated feelings and opinions can lead to conflict between those who have different beliefs regarding LGBTQIA lifestyles and rights. That's why I wanted to bring on an expert to the show to talk about inclusive communication. Tammy Plunkett is a certified allyship coach. She's the author of Beyond Pronouns, The Essential Guide for Parents of Trans Children. But most notably, she's the mom of four amazing kids, all who identify as queer, including two transgender teens. Welcome to the show, Tammy. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a riveting conversation, and I am so glad that we're having it because it can be very difficult, especially if you're a parent and you have four children that have come out. Now, your children are between 16 and 27. I'm sure that each of them had a different story when they discovered what their own true identity was. Can you tell us about what that was like? Yes, I believe that it would have been my oldest child who initially came out as bisexual in their teens. And then my second oldest as well, not too long right after that. And I sort of dismissed it. I said, well, we all are attracted to girls in high school. Like I was very attracted to girls in high school. And I had a couple of relationships. I said, that doesn't make you bisexual. And the kids were like, yeah, it does. Like, mom, you're bisexual, and you're dismissing it. <laughs> so bi erasure is a huge topic in our family and in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And then a few years passed along. And then my third child came out as trans transgender. So he was assigned female at birth. And he was 11 and shared that uh, he was a boy, he wanted to start a transition. Now he had been miserable for two years prior to that. From the time that puberty had started, he was just anxious all the time, depressed, panic attacks, there was no way of making him happy. And we had tried everything. And he was doing the self exploration as well, because he wasn't happy within himself. And then found like we talk openly in our family about LGBTQ issues, but never really talked about transgender. It wasn't definitely not as prominently discussed as today. So he had seen a video and said, this is it. This is it. He finally was able to put his finger on it and came out to us. That was quite an experience. I had thought that I was very liberal minded and open to all things. And I had a lot of fear for what his future would look like because of the negative conversations out in the ether. 
her. So we had a lot to learn with Mitchell and a lot of emotions that I go through in the book in great detail as well. So many emotions and and I'm sure we'll talk more about it as we go along in the podcast. And then my oldest child came out as non-binary. So it went back to learning about non-binary because everything that I was learning with Mitchell was along the female to male, male to female spectrum. Uh, Non-binary was a whole nother adventure for us as a family and learning to use they them pronouns and what does non-binary truly mean and so that was another adventure for us and then my youngest child came out as a trans girl I had my suspicions with Mitchell it came out of the blue I didn't know what uh, to expect Uh, and with Rose we had seen it coming for a couple of years that she needed to come to her own expression and identity on her own and be ready to share on her own and we laugh because she said she had to make sure that she was ready to take the pay cut because tongue-in-cheek about how (laughs) women are very aware children and they have taught me so much they have taught me so much about life and that really is it is that they are so progressive and forward and we're definitely in a new era where life is moving so fast and openness is really very interestingly liberating because i think before there were all these suspicions and things that we would hold inside and we wouldn't know what to make of our emotions and how we felt about ourselves and i think that it could lead to a lot of things like depression or just complete closing off from relationships and a lot of different things that now it seems like the openness is helpful for people to just get to know themselves a little bit more and to appreciate themselves more fully and wholly and be able to express themselves in ways that I think that we never had the courage to before. So I really do commend and applaud your kids for being courageous. No doubt they do know what they're getting into those that are in the lgbtqia community do suffer a lot of pressure from bullying mental health issues because of a lot of the the non-acceptance that still is rampant within our society and just a lot of people misunderstanding what they're about Mm -hmm. and so it's amazing that you have this whole life and this whole emporium of wonderful children that are able to teach you the entire spectrum (laughs) of what it means to be an ally. And so let's talk about what you feel like your emotions were going through the course of each of your children's transitions and stories. Because as you said, it also kind of liberated you or made you think about yourself as like, wow, I didn't realize that I was bi or I never would have labeled it as such. And so that was probably one of the first learnings. And then when you have a child that first comes out as bi, you said that you dismissed it, but then at what point do you think that you began to accept it? I truly feel that Mitchell was the event that clenched it all and had it all fall into place. It was through Mitchell coming out that all of us in the family slowed down and looked at our sexuality and our identity. And it's like, even I was like, am I truly a woman? What does it mean to be a woman? Do Mm -hmm. I feel like I am a woman? Am I happy with my feminine presentation? Or am I doing this because it's what society expects of me? And so 
I had to slow down and look at that myself. And I am a woman and I feel alignment with what society expects of me. It is my natural presentation. But I now understand that that is what my two youngest children had to go through was society was putting this expectation on Mitchell to have pigtails and curly hair and wear dresses and play with dolls. And none of that felt in alignment for him. He did it and he did it well, but on the inside, it didn't fit. So at some point he got tired of putting on the show of what it was to be a girl and to perform the roles of a girl in the world and said, this doesn't work for me. And it took him a while to figure out that that's what it was. So my emotions run the gamut and they were not linear. They were all over the place. I started out with fear. I was afraid for my children's futures. I was afraid that the world wouldn't accept them. I was afraid that, especially with my trans kids, that they wouldn't be able to get a job. If they fell in love, would the parents of the person they fell in love with accept them? There were so many fears that I had. And it wasn't because I didn't love my child. It's because of what I was afraid the world saw and thought. And I say this often, when Mitchell first came out, there were uh, bathroom laws being debated in North Carolina. So it was still very much in the news as a negative thing. It hasn't changed. It's still in the news as a negative thing. But that was one of the things that came with the fear. And then there was something that I talk about that not a lot of people talk about or were not talking about seven years ago was the experience of feeling some form of grief. Now, it wasn't that my child was dying. It was the ideas that I had for future when he was using female presentation and names and stuff like that. I felt like there wouldn't be a father-daughter dance. There wouldn't be a grad dress shopping spree. Like there was all of these futures that I had imagined for my child that will no longer happen. When you're in the throes of a whole emotional upheaval, it's hard to see that there is a lot of good. We did go shopping for a grad suit and there was a mother-son dance at his graduation. So like there are so many positives in it, but in the moment I was just so overwhelmed with the amount of change. And it was not a change that was taught. We didn't know until it was possible. So there was some bargaining. There was like all of the stages of grief were really what happened when the kids came out. And it was different when Rose came out. I had already written the book. I'd already been the lead in a peer-led support group. I'd met hundreds of parents of trans kids, hundreds of trans kids. So when she came out, it was like, okay, well, here's all of the things we need to do. I'm ready. I'm on board. I've got this. And she was like, no, no, slow your roll. I'm not ready to jump into all of these things. So that biggest lesson from that, that I share all the time with clients is if you know one transgender person, you know, one transgender person, Mm -hmm. every transgender person has a different journey, a different experience. Some people take medication, some people don't. Some people dress differently, some people don't. Some people change their names, some people don't. Some people need it to happen immediately, some people need it to happen over a decade. So everyone has a different journey and it's we can't just assume things of transgender people. 
I love that message because it seems like a lot of people are very much like, oh, if you're trans, then you want to just change directly from man's woman. But to your point, there is this gender fluidity. There is a spectrum regardless of the body, the physical sensibility that you've been given biologically. It's like, how do you feel? How do you want to express yourself? How does your whole aura want to live in this human form? And it could be very much female like you or myself or it could be very much male or it could be all of the above and everything in between all at once yes yes yeah so as far as your earlier life you were a registered nurse before you started becoming a coach and doing the work that you're doing now would you say that your work as a registered nurse helped to inform you in terms of your ability to understand what was happening and what was going on? Or do you think that that really didn't help at all? What was that like? Yeah, it hindered in in the beginning, to be completely honest, because I'm not a spring chicken. My nursing education happened a long time ago in the 90s, let's just say it. Back then, being transgender was considered a mental illness. And so when Mitchell initially came out, my first thought was, you need to see a psychologist. And he was in need of mental health care, but it was because of reconciling his identity and how the world was treating him. It wasn't because transgender equals mentally ill. So that was how my nursing hindered in my assumptions of what being transgender meant. Like I didn't even know what it meant. And then later on, it helps my children have chosen different degrees of medical transition. Mm -hmm. So it has helped in terms of understanding medication, knowing how to give a needle, knowing how to talk to doctors, knowing how to ask about side effects and positive effects of medication. So in that term, it has been helpful. But initially, it created some preconceived notions that are not healthy. Just to be clear, uh, the World Health Organization has removed transgender or gender identity and dysphoria as a mental illness. Uh, so <laughs> thank you. I just for... I like to say that because yeah. a lot of people people in the medical field right now for many jurisdictions in order to access health care gender affirming health care you need a diagnosis of gender dysphoria so that is where because there's a lot of mental health struggles and issues in gender diverse people there's this narrative that it's a mental illness there are mentally well and healthy individuals who go about their lives with gender diversity and so it's not a one equals the other. Absolutely. And so I'm curious because there's such a debate these days about gender affirming surgery and transitioning medically among youth. And should there be an age limit? Should there be this idea that they should wait until they're adults until they do that? I'm curious what your take is now that you've lived the experience with teens, with young ones, and see what they go through from your own personal mm-hmm. perspective. Not that it's the same for everybody. To your point, one trans person's experience is one trans person's experience. Yes, this is my personal opinion and approach. And that is to do the minimum amount 
to create the happiest person. So gender dysphoria is tremendously stressful. I have seen it firsthand. We have had suicidal ideations, plans, and ended up in the emergency room. It's not a joke. So when a person has that tremendous amount of gender dysphoria, gender-affirming care relieves it. So that is the purpose of the gender-affirming care. However, I am of the thought, with a minor, you do as little as you need to do to get them to a, a space of happiness. For some people, it is all of it, right? That now, first of all, a body that is still growing cannot have surgery. So sometimes that's a, a dog whistle that some groups use just to make it sound like we're mutilating or chopping children up. And that's not true. It does not happen, period. Thank you. For In terms of medication, me. some of the medications have permanent effects. So the gender blockers, so the puberty blockers do not have a permanent effect. And they've been used for 40 years in cisgender children who had precocious puberty. They're also used to treat infertility. They're used for prostate cancer. Like these are drugs that are being used throughout the world. So it's not that we are experimenting on children either. Oh. <laughs> so I'm trying to counter some of the narratives out there. Yeah. So hormone blockers, I think anybody should have access to them if they need them. If they are in distress and they need them, they should have access to them. Cross hormones, if the distress is real and it needs to be treated, then I think that with a doctor, a psychologist, parents, everyone's on board, then we should use cross hormones as needed. I don't believe that because a child comes home to their parent and says, I'm transgender, that we march a kid off to the doctor and then put them on a prescription of all of these medications and procedures because some children don't want or need that. You just mentioned very rightly that there are gender fluid people and they may not need to have hormones or alterations to their body. They may only choose to change how they express themselves in their clothing and their hair and their accessories. So it's not a one and done. Everybody gets the same treatment. All of that said, I don't feel that legislation saying that, okay, you can't do it until you're 18, but at the age of 17 and 360 days days, you have no idea who you are. And then five days later, you know who you are. Like that to me is just doesn't make any sense at all. So there are 16 year olds who are in some states allowed to get married, they are cooking your food, flipping burgers and not giving you food poisoning and operating farm equipment and not killing themselves, lobbing legs off with the farm equipment. Like we trust youth in so many areas of their life. But in concert with medical professionals and parents, all of a sudden they can't make a decision. So yeah, I could be passionate. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm curious what the emotional reaction was of their dad when they were going through all of the, this as well. Were you aligned or were there differences in the way that you handled the news for each of your children? Yeah, I think we are aligned in our values in terms of wanting the best for our children and we value science, we value medical professionals, and we both value therapy and psychology as well. We 
came to an acceptance at a different time. I think that, and we also process the world very differently. I'm an external processor. I'll write about it. I'll speak about it. I'll go and find all the information I can. Whereas their dad was much more of an internal processor. So he would just turtle and just go through everything on his own. But when it was time to show up for the kids, he would be there. He'd come to the medical appointments and to the therapy appointments and show up for anything that they needed. Do you think that he had his own questions of his own gender identity as you did? I don't think so. He hasn't spoken to me about it. He's a quiet guy. So <laughs> yeah, but he definitely still seems very in touch with his masculine side. Mm, yeah, people process things differently. It's uh, interesting to see that. Well, now you wrote the book Beyond Pronouns, The Essential Guide for Parents of Trans Children. I'm curious what the impetus was behind that book and what people can expect. You you wrote it once your child Mitchell had his transition. And so I'm curious what is contained in there and what are some of the things that people can expect? So the impetus for the book was actually an article that I wrote for today's parent. It was essentially the soul of the story was that I was feeling some sense of grief and the narratives that I heard out there were always parents were either 100% accepting from the moment their kid came out and they whipped out the pom-poms and everything was a celebration, or parents were sending their kids off to conversion therapy and kicking their kids out. And I was in between that. Like, I wasn't ready to celebrate when Mitchell first came out. I had all of those fears and emotions, but I was definitely not going to send him off to conversion therapy. Like, I believed him and was ready to affirm him but I had more feelings than just yes and no so I wrote that in an article and the response was overwhelming the numbers of emails and messages that I received from parents saying this is exactly how I feel and nobody is saying it so there was that piece and then there was leading the support group that I was in hearing the same questions over and over and over again from the parents they were always asking the same questions so I said well what about if I I just did the research and found the answers to these questions and put them in a book and then they would have a resource when their kid first came out. So Beyond Pronouns truly focuses on a social transition of a younger child. Essentially, when I first wrote it, it was what to do in the first hundred days. So mm -hmm. it's really in that beginning stage. How do you tell the grandparents? How do you tell the school? Do you only talk about it in the house or is it discussed outside of the house? What do you do when you're co-parenting? What do you do with all of your own feelings? And that is a huge part of it is the self-care proponent of we can't serve from an empty cup and we need to be there because this is a long-term thing. This is not a flash in the pan. This is a big life step within the family. So everyone in the family has to be taken care of. So I'm quite proud of it. I am contemplating writing a follow-up book, which would be about how caregivers can be of service to their youth when the youth goes through a medical transition. So not the first hundred days, but more when they're older and ready to look at a medical transition. 
Wow. So you just talked about a few of the big questions. It's like, how do we tell? What do we do? Those sorts of things. And I'm curious what your take would be on when is the right time that is going to be those first 100 days, like to make this public announcement. Is it up to the child? Is it a mutual agreement? How do you recommend going about that? Yeah. So the co-leader of the support group that I ran was a trans woman and she and I together came up with this analogy and I I've just loved it so much and people really resonate with it. And that is that your child has to drive the bus. And it can be very terrifying as an adult to have an eight-year-old, an 11-year-old, or even a 15-year-old driving the bus sometimes. So they get to decide who gets on the bus. So the child gets to decide who gets to know. They get to decide if they want grandma to know, is it them who tells grandma or do they want mom to tell grandma? Rose, my youngest, when she came out to me said, I don't want to tell the school right away. I don't want to change my pronouns and name at school yet. She came out in May and school was ending in June. So we decided to wait until September when they went and use that summer to really be sure and try on and, and tell other people slowly, like she didn't want the Facebook announcement, whereas Mitchell did. So each again, each person is very different. So ask your child, let them drive the bus. The other thing I say about the bus is that there are rules of the road to reassure parents because it can be scary <laughs> to have a kid driving a bus, but we have to realize that they can't drive 85 in a 60 zone right? So there are speed limits, there are ways of the road. So when Mitchell came out at 11, the one thing he wanted the most was a beard. He still wanted a beard. And I said, well, look around your classroom and you tell me what other 11 year old kids have a beard. They don't. So at 11, he could not start testosterone. It just wasn't an option. So that's the rules of the road. So it is the kids who need to make the decisions and then we need to follow suit along with them. Great advice. Great advice. Now, I think that you offer so much support for parents and families, but you also provide support for organizations because let's face it, this is a new thing that a lot of companies are going through where they must show allyship. They must. It's the politically correct thing to do, but truly beyond the surface, how are they operating? How do the people feel? Do they feel included? Do they feel accepted? Do they really feel like they belong? Or is there some unconscious bias happening within an organization that could be causing tension or an unwelcome environment? Can you talk about some of the work that you do to support organizations? Yeah, the best thing that I do when I go into an organization is to ask them why they are doing this and to really have them align with why they're doing it. It can't be a ploy. It can't be, I just want to look cute on social media or have it be a statement on their website. There truly has to be a connection as to why they're doing it. And one of the reasons why I suggested is that oppression happens to all of us. All of us are affected by it. And when all of us are working towards removing the oppression, then many hands make light work, right? So we're able to all rise above the oppression. And when I say all of us, I mean all of us. And this is something that people often dismiss and don't realize that the old white man is also oppressed uh, by the systems that we live under. It is not 
easy for a man to say, I need therapy. I'm drowning in overwhelm and stress right now. The patriarchy has put so many rules on how men are meant to show up that they are living under those rules as well and being oppressed by those rules. Do they have privilege? Enjoy a lot of more wonderful things in life that a Black disabled trans woman does not have? Absolutely. Like they do have a leg up in a lot of different areas. But I think we all need to come together and have a deeper look at we all have unconscious bias. We're all affected by systems that have blinded us as to how we are operating in the world. I think that's very well said. And to the point of how when you first learned of your children's gender identities, there was a a sensibility like, oh my gosh, and there's a grief stage and there's all of these things. And I think of like organizations almost going through that same process, but in a different way. There has to be like this learning of what does this mean for us? And over time you get to acceptance. But I think that the first step is being open to it and understanding that truly underneath it all, if you really value and care for humans and understand that everybody is oppressed and everybody wants to feel like they can contribute and everybody's got so much talent. And so why ostracize or alienate any particular subset or cohort, if you will, make your company a place that is known for for being good to humanity, then starting from your own values and then seeing what you can do in order to get to a place where the acceptance goes into the underpinning of your organization and into its culture. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's not that we're telling every organization that they have to be fully embracing or then they're bad organizations. It's, you know, let's do this soul searching. The training of managers, I mean, companies, organizations are filled with humans and each of those people has to go through their own process of learning and understanding and welcoming. And then from there can create a culture. It's the people that make the culture. And so I would love for you to share some of the types of support that you do provide to organizations once you do see like, well, well, what are you doing this for? I think that to your point, starting with why is where you need to start. That's always the best Mm -hmm. place to start is to start with why. And you did touch on it. It is reaffirming their values. And it is an exercise that a lot of companies will do is they'll meet once a year and look at their mission and vision. And what are your true values that you really want to have show up in your work every day and reconnecting with those values. Other sense of belonging is something that we say when it's the company culture, but it truly is belonging. If you have a diverse group of people in your company, do they all feel like they belong and that they matter? Or are they a token to say that I have X number of people of color on my board, right? And then the humanity behind it is so important. And to me, that is leading with empathy. One of the talks that I like to give is called leading with empathy. And it's truly seeing the humanity behind everyone in an organization. Gone are the days of the industrial revolution where we're all just cogs in a wheel. Like everyone who shows up to a job in today's world is a human being with a full range of their own life. And we need to learn how to work together so that everyone can show up as their authentic self and feel like they belong and they matter when they go home at the end of the day. 
a company put forth this kind of culture and not seem like they're tokenizing, patronizing, just doing it to check a diversity box. What do you think that it is that can enable a company to really truly stand for inclusion? It becomes a way of life in the company. And it's not, let's do a lunch and learn, have Tammy come in and give a talk for one hour and then not look at it again for another year. It truly becomes a culture. It's in the policies, it's in the procedures, it's in the way everyone operates their work. There are some amazing companies out there that you can see it in action. There's a company here, it's called Benevity. And even the titles of their chief operating, like their C-suite, are inclusive and show that they care and everything matters. So it can absolutely be done and not just be a checklist of, did we say happy Diwali on our social media this week? Like that's not inclusion. It seems like inclusion, but it truly is. Are you doing it because you care, because you understand what it means and because it is part of your culture in your business? It's not a thing that we check off a box. And a lot of times you need a diversity, equity, and inclusion manager in your company if you really want to have this be a big thing moving forward. Yeah, good point. I know that in some, I would say antiquated, but we'll say policies and procedures, the way that things are communicated, handbooks and whatnot, you actually go through and you audit communications and you perhaps get out the highlighter and say, hey, this is not necessarily inclusive language. What are some of the things that you have seen that you've been like, whoa, we've got to make adjustments for this because it's not inclusive? Yes. Oh boy. I'll stick to my (laughs) wheelhouse of gender diversity and it is not a lifestyle it is an identity so sometimes people will it's not a choice the choice in gender diversity is the choice of how much do we tell people how much do we share our inner being how much do we affirm ourselves in our clothing in our medical decisions that's where the choice is it's not in being transgender or being non-binary that is who they are it's how they are made from the inside. So some of the language, ladies and gentlemen, negates anyone who is non-binary. So mm-hmm. I often say use folks or friends or nothing at all. I say Sir beautiful and humans. Man. I don't know if that's... Yes, beautiful <laughs> humans is wonderful. It is very good. Yes. Oh. I think that one of the big red flags for me is when people want diversity, but they don't want inclusion and belonging. That's where the tokenism comes in. It's like, okay, we have 10 employees. We want... Three of them to be black, two to be Latino, and five of them to be women. But then when you do have the two Latino people in the group, do they feel like they belong? Do they feel like they're being included? Are their messages being received? Are they asked for their opinion? Those are the things that create inclusion. Whereas it's not a matter of just having a number of veterans, a number of disabled people. It is making sure that the disabled person has access to all of the things that they need to perform the job that they're to perform. It's complicated, but tokenism is not good. (laughs) So if you're a law firm and every other law firm in my city has a diversity, equity, inclusion statement on their website, so I will post one on my website. If you're not doing the work, it looks very gross. So yeah. Yeah. So the important thing is to 
learn to understand to get into that idea of empathy and compassion and really respecting i think that it has to do a lot with respecting children for they're telling you denying them the ability to at least have a conversation when your beliefs or your thoughts of what the future should have been or could have been or would have been otherwise get in the way of your child living their life as happy as they can and then growing up to be fully expressed then that's something to definitely take stock and then as companies you know if we can learn to respect and sometimes it does it requires us to go out of our way there are populations that have been marginalized and haven't been heard and haven't had a voice in the past and it is important for us to give stronger microphones to those that didn't have those voices so that we can have a bit more equity then i think that we'll all be able to live more harmoniously together and inclusion and belonging will just be rather than the exception it's more the rule yeah 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 tammy i just want to thank you for your allyship i want to thank you for all the work that you're doing it's really wonderful that you're helping to honor people of all gender identities you know you're helping to make the world a place where everyone can feel welcome so thank you so much for being part of the movement thank you Thank you for listening to the Human Beauty Movement podcast. Be sure to follow, rate, and review us wherever you stream podcasts. The Human Beauty Movement is a community-based platform that cultivates the beauty of humankind. Check out our workshops, find us on social media, and share our inspiration with all the beautiful humans in your life. Learn more at thehumanbeautymovement.com. Thank you so much for being a beautiful human.